Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents... Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm excited. What are you excited for? Well, because finally, it's it's the day, man. We talk about Mantar. Huh? You know. Before we do... Uh, let's talk about last week's show, kind of put a bow on our ravishing recruit episode. Uh, what kind of feedback did you get, Bruce? Well, of course, you know, the, our audience, which I love so much because you guys have made us one of the most downloaded podcasts in all the podcast history. And we appreciate that very much, but boy, do you love to pick on us when we miss something? Uh, well, let's touch on that. Uh, we missed the 87 slammies. Uh, we should mention that uh, Rick Rude was a part of it. He kind of did the Chippendale. He had the um, the bow tie and the cuffs and started to do a little bit of a strip before Mangy Nokelin runs in with a towel to spare us from seeing what's so ravishing about Rick Rude. Well, thank God he did. Otherwise, his dong would have been exposed on television. <laughs> and Lord knows how you love to talk about Rick Rude's dong. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's not fair. That's very fair. Uh, we... It's funny that you mentioned that because we do have two more dong topics with Rickard. I can't believe it's a thing. Um, but yeah, it's the gonna other be th- trending on on Twitter. Hashtag <laughs> Rick Rude's Rick dong. Rude's dong. <laughs> if that trends, people, I'm gonna be half hot. Oh my gosh! So the other thing we missed apparently is, uh, I guess, in October, uh, Jake Roberts came out and tore the tights off of Rick Rude, and he was exposed. And the WWF put up the big censor block and censored it, and lots of people. Uh, there's rumor and innuendo were swearing that they saw Rick Rude's privates, uh, which I just call party foul on. There's no chance that actually happened. Clear up the rumor and innuendo. Well, they might have, if they had been back in the locker room, maybe and snuck in and watched and take a shower, but there was absolutely no way possible for you to have seen Rick Rude's dong on television (laughs) during that time because he was wearing a dad gum G string. Oh my gosh! Well, good lord, people, come on! We're not quite done. Have you seen a dong before? <laughs> Our audience is ninety-eight percent male. I would hope that they would know what one looks like, and I'm a little disturbed that they are fixated and that they are so enamored with Rick Rude's dong. <laughs> well. <laughs> Hershey pooted, now Rick Rude's dog. I mean, what the hell is this podcast come to? Um, We're not done. And it's your fault. Oh, we got more dog shit, folks. (laughs) Go ahead. 
Uh, we have to do this. On our last episode about Rick Rude, we had to clear up the rumor and innuendo <laughs> from Honky Talk Man, who alleged that Rick Rude committed suicide because he had to have his penis amputated after an infection from him injecting Viagra into his penis. I freestyled that that wasn't a thing you could do, but that adult film stars would sometimes use uh, an injectable fluid called Caverject, and I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, well, Sean Waltman, who has his own podcast, and you should certainly go check out, XPOC12360. It's on AfterBuzz, and it's super fun. He's a great guy and a, a fun follow on Twitter as well. He tweeted me to say he enjoyed the show and that the rumors of him injecting Caverject were true. Uh, apparently, he had heard that directly from Kurt Henning and that Rude did have an incident where maybe the wrestler dosage, quote-unquote, uh, didn't really work in that method and he overdid it and when he landed he had to go straight to an er and he had to ice it down and there was a whole situation but he he did not have an amputation so he didn't commit suicide because hashtag rick rude's dong was amputated well folks we'd like to thank you for listening to something to wrestle with bruce pritchard and, did you uh, ever think we'd get this deep on rick rude's dong I didn't. I didn't. But if you ever wanted to know anything about Rick Rude's dong, <laughs> by God, this is the place to find out, apparently. We got to get those downloads somehow, don't we? I got, somehow, some way. I just never in a million years believe I would be uttering the words Rick Rude's dong to a half million people. That I, just, that flabbergasts me. Yeah. I mean, I run a family. I like that company. thing that, that that they entered that they inject into their ding dong. <laughs> flabbergasted. I'm going to use big words here. Uh, I'm flabbergasted, folks, over Rick Rude's dong and your obsession with it. I feel like that's a shirt now. Hashtag Rick Rude's dong. No, no more hashtags. Okay, Bruce. Uh, it's kind of fitting that uh, we've teased and we've teased and we teased, but here it is: the Royal Rumble we're going to cover for the Royal Rumble poll that ended in a tie. Is the Royal Rumble that ended in a tie, 1994. Uh, when it came down to a tie, what made you decide, hey, we need to do 94 instead of 98? It was first. I, I agree. I, I think this show works really well when we can go chronologically when we can. And there's a lot of controversy around 94. Uh, I'm fascinated by what's happening in the business at the time. Uh, but also, too, just like you said, it was first. So... Uh, that's what we're going to cover today. We hope that you're uh, in the mood for some good stories because there are a lot coming out of this one. Uh, let's get started right away, though. Uh, back in January of 94, on the January 3rd edition of The Observer, uh, Dave Meltzer wrote that Tatanka and Ludwig Borga was added to the Royal Rumble undercard, but ultimately the match wouldn't happen because of an ankle injury to Borga. Uh, do you recall how this came about and why you guys chose to go with Bigelow instead? Well, we just needed to put somebody in there, and bam, 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 fit. It was just a logical logical match. You needed a heel in there. Um, Borga was out and needed someone to work with Tatanka, wanted to get Tatanka on the show. Uh, it's Borga, kind of that simple. Borga wouldn't even return to the company uh, ever uh, after this. Do you know what's up with that? You know, Ludwig was a strange guy. His real name, Tony Holm. He actually became a shoot fighter afterward. And did some politics in Finland, but he was uh, an interesting cat, if you will, and not the most well-liked guy in the locker room, not the most well-liked guy on the street. Um, 
very opinionated in, in his views of the world. But uh, Ludwig, we parted ways at that point, and he didn't come back. And he went on to go try his tough man roles and, and try to be a shoot fighter. Didn't do too well there. But he did actually get nominated in his own country to a senator, some kind of elected post over in Finland. On the uh, January 10th edition of The Observer, uh, Meltzer wrote, Despite it being announced for weeks that the Royal Rumble in Providence is sold out, as of press time January 4th, there are still plenty of tickets available, according to the box office at the Civic Center. I think announcing the sellout live as a way to attempt to hype interest in the show as a pay-per-view is now simply company policy, as they've done it numerous times on shows that weren't sold out. It's worth mentioning the show did eventually sell out, uh, 14,500 folks or so, uh, but without turning this into an anti-Meltzer rant, which is what I know you want to do, uh, what's the deal with this? What's no. the thinking behind announcing it is sold out when it wasn't? Doesn't that go against conventional wisdom? Well, okay. Th- think of how idiotic that is. We're sold out. There's no more tickets available, folks. So don't don't go to buy. How stupid is that? You did it, though. The, no, we didn't. Okay. No, we didn't. We were sold out. Now, if somebody said that they called uh, their friend who said that, well, I called the box office two weeks ago and they said there were still tickets available there may be one ticket here one ticket there that they could get at the box office and by the way we do release camera kills day of the show they always did but it was sold out in advance again why do you want to say we're sold out don't try and get tickets if you still have tickets to sell well i mean that's idiotic well Meltzer agrees well okay but Meltzer's so saying- an idiot what i'm saying is that i guarantee you that Meltzer didn't buy any tickets if there were tickets to buy then people can buy the tickets if he called which i doubt he did he probably had someone tell him that oh hey my brother i think you're making uh, this into a bigger issue because it's idiotic the statement in and of itself is idiotic well they they announced that they were sold out there are really tickets available there probably were one or two seats available that the box office might have told and i don't know a box office that ever says that, no, we all, we've got great seats. They want you to come down and they'll try and sell you other shit. But there are seats. Okay. So you're saying perhaps. What I'm saying is perhaps someone called and, and they, they were said, to. hey, man, yeah, we got seats. Come on down. Yes. Um, you said a word a minute ago. A lot of people are going to want to know more about camera kills. Explain what that is. When an arena is booked for a television taping and or pay-per-view specifically a pay-per-view when the advanced team goes in they look at the arena and they decide where the hard cameras are going to go they also look at the entranceway and even if we've been in the arena a million times with the same set they still go see if anything's changed if anything has changed with the sets and what have you and the camera kills are seats that they kill in advance. They don't sell because they could possibly be obstructed either by cameras or by the set. So you don't want to sell those seats. You don't ever want to put those seats on sale. Until maybe the day before? Well, a lot of times, not even until the day of. Okay. Once everything is set up and you get in and you realize, hey, you know, they, they move this or we took a piece off of the set and all of a sudden, damn, we've got all these seats. That's not a bad seat. And that's open these up. And that could be dozens to hundreds. Correct. Yeah. Um, in the January 10th observer, uh, Dave writes in November, Titan sports sent out a casting call for both men and women in Hollywood for martial arts performers with the claim they were looking at producing live shows. 
Don't know if they're looking for martial arts gimmick guys to face wrestlers a la New Japan's successful formula or looking at producing a martial arts television show or even a martial arts promotion. In February, Meltzer would write, according to newspaper reports, Summit Media Group and Titan Sports are each 50% owners of the new World Martial Arts Federation, a show planned for syndication starting in September. The story said Summit Media approached Titan about the concept because they were looking to create a kickboxing version of the WWF, and Titan went in halvesies with a 26-episode project that is budgeted to be somewhere between 3 and $5 million. Now, this is certainly a sidebar here, Bruce, but I don't know when we'll talk about this again. Uh, it's happening around the same time as the Rumble, so it seems like the only right time to ask, what the hell was the idea here, and why didn't we see more of this? It was the WMAF, the World Martial Arts Federation, and I forget the gentleman's name that <laughs> we partnered with. Summit Group is, is probably correct. And the idea was to produce a Saturday morning, half-hour battle art show, for lack of a better term. And it was going to be staged karate fights. Um Kickboxing, full contact karate, if you will, kind of like I'm trying to think of the show. Not not the Power Rangers, but uh, one of the the games that the kids played at the time uh, was karate, maybe Karate Fighters. But the idea was to create a studio and have an indoor arena, and you would take these great karate fighters from around the world and pit them against each other, culminating in a tournament and a champion. At the end of the season. But worked. Um, I'm sorry? But work it. Oh, yeah. 100% worked. Yeah. And uh, I was heavily involved in it. I went out and did the casting for it and met with the who's who um, in the karate world and the martial arts world. So trying to get legit names. Yes. To lend their yes. name. Yeah. And uh, Ernie, Ernie Reyes Jr., Benny Urquidez, Bill Wallace. Um, yeah, I met with quite a few of the of the top Top martial arts. And you were the right guy for that because you had a karate background. I did have a karate background, and I knew a lot of people in the industry. Joe Corley out in Atlanta and, um, of course, friends with Bill Wallace and Bill Gray with American Society of Karate in Houston, Texas. And I had a lot of, I had a lot of friends in that world. What happened to the project? It just kind of died on the vine when the more that you get into it and the more that you're dealing with the – you think wrestlers have egos? Holy shit. Um, these – a lot of these guys – I'm not losing. Were of the opinion, yes. I'm not losing. Well, I can't. They can't I can, beat me. I, well, let's just go ahead and do it for real and see who wins. And I'm, I'm looking at them going, guys. We're looking, to, we're looking to create stars here. We're looking to put you on television for 26 weeks every Saturday morning in, in the kids' slot and build stars out of this, do action figures, do live events. Merchandising. Merchandising, all, the- all of the above, things that these guys had never even had a taste of. Sure. and Because there wasn't significant money in karate. No, not at all, especially full contact karate. Right. And the thought of... The thought of losing was ridiculous, just unheard of. The yeah. ego on some of these guys, even guys that were out of the competitive business who who had a bit of a name, but their ego wouldn't allow them. You know, you, you talk about Chuck Norris, who's done so much for the world of martial arts, and Chuck 
was a great point fighter. But when full contact karate came in, that's when Chuck made his exit. Yeah. So it was, he was a unbelievable, great technician, great, great fighter, but he didn't want to get hit. And I don't blame him for that. I'm the same. <laughs> so how much money do you think Vince threw down this idea? We didn't, we didn't put uh, much money in it at all. It was more exploratory. It okay. was more, let's go out there and see if there's, if there's something there, let's see if we can put something. It just together. wasn't feasible. It just wasn't feasible. And in addition to that, the, the talent pool that we had to choose from wasn't realistic. You're really excited about karate, aren't you? Not really. Okay. Well, nobody else is either. Let's move on. January 17th, Observer. Uh, Tenru and Kabuki are being pushed as mercenaries hired by Mr. Fuji in the Royal Rumble to eliminate Lex Luger. Little known trivia, in 81, Fuji and Tenru held the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team title. Tenru went on to become one of the all-time legends in Japanese wrestling. And 13 years later, this has come full circle. I want to talk about these two signings, Bruce. Uh, How did the Tenru deal come about? The Tenru deal was actually something where Tenru was starting his own company in Japan. What was the name of that? Uh, was it War? War? That's yeah, right. I think so. And, and, and Meltzer reports that in exchange for their involvement in the Rumble, the WWF is going to go to Japan and do some joint shows over there with him to help build his war promotion that May. Is correct. That, that rings a bell to you? Yeah, correct. We were just going to send talent over. We were going to do a few co-promotions, but... Also, we wanted to bring the Japanese culture is one of that if their stars are seen in the States or anywhere else, Mexico, wherever the hell else, if their stars outside of Japan, they're bigger stars in, in Japan. Uh, Kabuki looked really out of place here to me in a 1994 WWF, and I can't believe bringing him in is even remotely a Vince idea. Uh, talk me through Kabuki being booked on this show. Well, it's only one show. It's a one-off. It's a special event. It's, it's hey, people had heard the name, the great Kabuki, for years. And he was a big star in world class. He was a big star in the mid-Atlantic in Georgia. With, you know, had a great program with Dusty Rose, Kabuki. What did Vince think about Kabuki? He wasn't impressed. <laughs> wasn't impressed at all. He He looked... Especially without the makeup on, he, he looked very old, and then he put the makeup on, and, and he just didn't. He didn't look like a 1994 WWF wrestler. No, in the the R of Kabuki, which in the 80s was you could do vignettes on him in this mis- mysterious Kabuki. And the other secret to Kabuki was you didn't see him work a lot. Right. So you had to pay to see him. and Yeah. You didn't see through as much of his shit. Uh, January 17th, Observer uh, Meltzer writes, Luger did an interview on syndication talking about being allowed in the rumble that was delivered so poorly and came off as so insincere, I'm amazed they even let it run unless it was a subtle stage one of a, a, subtle stage one of a turn. Uh, Bruce, we've talked about Lex during uh, this run on the Lex Express episode, which is in the archives for you to enjoy. Uh, but let's touch on him again here. Do you recall shooting promos and stuff like this with Lex just being a real chore? A lot of things with Lex were real chore, especially in, in those days. And I actually recall exactly what. The promo in question? I, I do. And How many times did you shoot it? I didn't. Guess who did? Silphies. No. Cornette. No. You're close. Getting warm. I have no idea. Well, you know. Oh, my gosh. I didn't see that coming. 
So he shot it and it airs. And do you and Vince lose your mind? Like, why the fuck is this on? Yes and no, but it was one of those situations where, uh, it's one of those deals where that's one of those deals where, uh, you know, you gotta let, you gotta let people try some things and people being Jarrett or people being Luger, people being Jarrett. Yeah. And Jerry was not a great producer and he, he did this, but he also, and oh my God, what, what time, what, where the hell are we? I'll actually defend Jerry Jarrett here. You know, he didn't have a whole lot to work with in Lex Luger <laughs> at the time. And it was during the time that Lex wasn't the most cooperative in the world. And you're pulling teeth. That's worth mentioning because it feels like we're picking on Lex here. Uh, Lex is a great guy. He's in a great place in his life. He's on Twitter. Uh, he's very active with fans. He couldn't be more polite or uh, a delight to visit with if you see him at a convention. But. In certain periods in the 90s, he had a reputation for being difficult. Yeah, and Lex will tell you that. And Lex is no different than Shawn Michaels. Lex is a completely different person than Absolutely. he was back then. Okay, I can't believe uh, that we've somehow found a way for him to come up again. Bruce, I didn't think you were going to say that name today. But since we're talking all things Jerry Jarrett for a minute, uh, I have to share something that was recently pointed out to me. And if you're listening right now where you can open a new web browser, whether you're at your desk or you're on your phone, I want you to go to Google and start typing along with me. I'll give you a second to get there. But when you get there, I'm going to give you a word and then a second word. And I want you to look at your suggestions list. So let's get started. Okay. G-O-O-G-L-E.com. Google. Uh, And then start typing in Jerry. And then start typing in Jarrett. And before you finish, probably after the first T, but certainly after the second T, You'll see a series of suggestions. <laughs> Do you see what that says, Bruce? Oh, good Lord. So it says Jerry Jarrett, and then the first suggestion is? Jerry Jarrett, net worth. And the second suggestion is? Jerry Jarrett, WWF. And the third suggestion is? Jerry Jarrett, chicken salad. Can you what believe- in the hell? Can you believe that's real? That's tremendous. Enough people have typed in Jerry Jarrett's name. With the words chicken salad, that it is now right behind him in WWF. That man has been on this earth for 74 years, and in the span of a few months, he is just as synonymous with chicken salad as he is WWF. Well, you know. Can you believe this is real life? That's tremendous. It is tremendous. So let's talk about uh, January 17th. You guys ran Madison Square Garden and drew a house of about 9,000, so about half a house. Uh, with this card, Scott Putsky and Mike Sharp, um, Rick Steiner and Ludwig Borga, Razor Ramon and Jeff Jarrett, Yokozuna and Tatanka, the Quebecers beat the one, two, three kid and Marty Jannetty to become tag team champions. That's a title switch there. And then Owen Hart wins a Royal Rumble. And inside that Royal Rumble, the final four participants are Owen, Brett, Sean, and Fatu. Eventually, of course, Owen wins. Uh, Sergeant Slaughter is even inside this Royal Rumble, and Ivan Putsky, who was supposed to be in it, instead was in the corner of his son Scott, who was dressed like the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, the Rock and Roll Express and the Heavenly Bodies both no-showed because of transportation problems. I've got lots of questions about this particular house show. First of all, I didn't realize you guys did big Royal Rumble gimmick matches on big house shows. Was this a one-off, or was this pretty common? 
No, this was a one-off. We we would do it in different places sometimes, but this was in particular was a one-off for New York. Is it thought of as hey, this is kind of a warm-up for the Rumble and try some things, or is it just a throwaway attraction for the house show and that live event in particular? With no real correlation to the match. No, it, it wasn't a throwaway. It was simply a different attraction for the garden to give them something different and try it out. Because, again, as we've talked about several times on this show, your house shows, main events, and things that we did on TV were to drive live events right. versus pay-per-view. This was to try almost the opposite. Let's see if that pay-per-view attraction will work as a live event. It's just kind of an experiment. Uh, so this house show shows, uh, as we mentioned, the one, two, three kid and Marty Jannetty losing the tag titles to the Quebecers just after a week uh, run. So they had only had it a week when they lost it. And Meltzer reports that kid was legitimately hurt on the show. Paramedics came out and Dave thought he broke his leg, but it wound up only being a knee uh, that would put him out for several weeks. Do you recall one, two, three kids knee injury here and how this may have changed your plans? I don't know if it changed our plans any, but it was, I do as you bring it up, I do recall that, and he just tweaked his knee. What the hell was Scott Pusky doing dressed up like the warrior? Wasn't dressed up like the warrior. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most message and data rates may apply. See paint your life.com slash terms for details. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. He wasn't wearing face paint and tassels? and No. Okay. No. So Meltzer just made that up completely? Yes. Got it. Or somebody told him that because he had purple tights on or something, but he absolutely did not wear face paint or tassels. Uh, any memories of what happened here with the Rock and Roll Express or Heavenly Bodies? I, I can't imagine Ricky Morton wanting to miss a show at Madison Square Garden. No, I want to say they were stuck in a snowstorm in the Smoky Mountains. Okay. So, okay. It was, so it was travel related. No from, heat on them at all. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Absolutely not. I know Ricky would have loved to work. At Madison Square Garden. Oh, yeah, so with the bodies. Um, worth noting that heading into the Rumble, Meltzer guessed it would be Brett or Luger winning the Rumble match. Somebody who was a surefire bet once upon a time was Tatanka. When he debuted, he debuted uh, with a long undefeated streak. But here, uh, right before the 94 Royal Rumble, he starts doing jobs for Yokozuna on the house shows. Was there more to this, Bruce, uh, you know, for a guy to come in and then have this big unbeaten streak for a long time? And then suddenly it seems like you guys just kind of shift gears and he starts losing without it being some major blow off at a pay-per-view or a feud. Is this fence just getting tired of someone or something or did Tatanka have heat? No, it was simply the next step and he's losing to the WWF champion in Yokozuna. And it also was kind of a precursor to his heel turn. There you go. Um, The one-year anniversary of Monday Night Raw, which happened on January 10th, uh, which is also where they did the uh, tag title change we referenced earlier with one two three kid and Marty Jannetty winning the belts did a three point four rating. It was the first show in months not going head to head with the uh, NFL, and uh, it did really good ratings. And I'm curious, you know, since this is you know so close to a pay per view, obviously that's good news for the pay per view. But this is pre-Monday Night Wars. Kind of set the stage for us, Bruce. How big of a deal were ratings in 94? They weren't followed that big. They were obviously somewhat important, but they weren't really live and die by the ratings. The primetime numbers prior to Monday Night Raw were huge, and I followed them. But it was impressive. It was great, but they weren't live and die by the ratings and oh my yeah. god what, what was the rating last night it was almost an afterthought um the rumble go home show drew a 3.6 for monday night raw which made it the sixth highest show for the week of any kind on cable television uh, raw at the time was generally finishing between 10 and 15 in the weekly ratings the previous high was four so this is really good news as they're heading into this rumble which means there's a lot of interest there uh, on one of those shows uh, that were syndicated, Mania, I believe, they even showed a lot of the Rumble participants drawing their numbers, though not revealing who got what number, just giving you a little bit of an indication based on early or late, just using their facial expressions. Um, also on those syndicated shows, they really continued to further the Brett and Owen angle, talking about uh, being happy that Kid and Jannetty had won the tag titles. And Owen being unhappy uh, because it seems like it screws up his chance to win the title at the Rumble. 
Um, so then Brett announces he's giving up his singles career and he does this on syndicated TV and he says he's going to wrestle the rest of his career as a tag team wrestler. But Owen seems less than thrilled with this announcement. Uh, the booking here, Bruce, with this Owen Hart, Bret Hart feud is really a highlight from this era. Uh, who had their hands on this creatively? Well, truth of the matter is the original, the, the whole 30,000 feet idea and everything laid out was Bruce Hart. Really? And Bruce had sent in an idea to Vince and had laid out a lot of things culminating with a feud with Brett and Vince really liked the idea. Vince thought it was well thought out and a good idea. So talk to Brett about it. And somewhere in there, Brett was Brett liked the idea too, but Brett felt that he it should be Owen. It should be Owen. Yeah, Brett wrote in his book that he campaigned for it to be Owen rather than bringing in another brother, which he felt like would be doing a disservice to Owen, who he kind of felt had been overlooked and passed over for opportunities. Right. Um, do you remember Vince being receptive to that, or is it something Vince had to be sold on? Because he had already kind of— Receptive to Owen? Had Vince kind of already written off Owen in his mind, or did did Brett just—or did Vince just like the idea and didn't care? It's Brett and another brother, insert brother. Well, Vince, Vince, in his mind, reading it, saw it as Bruce because it was Bruce pitching Bruce. Sure. Um, and it was a good idea. So it was pitched to Brett, and it was – Owen was overlooked. You know, <laughs> when you think about it, and Brett was kind of like, hey, Owen's here. They know Owen, and he could pull this off better than anybody. And that's how, how it all – came to be and i think that is everything progressed and we started everybody got their hands involved in it i gravitated more to owen being the little brother and jealous of the older brother always getting the spotlight and you know the the family being the favorite in the family and being the one that everybody looks to uh, i could relate to that sure and so Owen and I would get together and we would talk and I would really help Owen get into that uh, petulant, jealous little brother place that Owen perfected to a T. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about Brett and Owen a lot more in this show and um, on future shows. On the January 24th Observer, uh, Meltzer wrote that Medusa, who was working at the time as a Lundra Blaze, had been in contact with the Japanese about sending over wrestlers to feud with her. Uh, naming a lot of names. Um, of course, we know uh, that eventually, later that year, Bull Nakano would come in and work a series of matches with Medusa. Do you remember if Medusa started these talks on her own, or was Vince already actively looking to bring in Japanese women to work with her? Well, we were looking for women to come in and work with Medusa, and the, work Medusa style. Right. Because Medusa was a working machine, and she didn't wrestle the traditional American women wrestling, style. you know, moolah style of hair pulling and yeah. animated. Yeah. She, she was much better. And Medusa really made her, made her name for herself in Japan. So why not bring over, you know, the big, mean, nasty foreigner in bull Nakano to come over and, and work a program. And that was Medusa's idea. So, and so it was Medusa's idea. And, and you guys 
kind of tasked Medusa with at least getting the ball rolling because she had relationships. Sure. Okay. Uh, I, I just find that fascinating. I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. Of course, everybody listening knows the WWF did away with the women's division the next year. Uh, and I'm sure we'll cover that in great detail in the future. Uh, right before the rumble, this, I find this hilarious. Meltzer wrote the day before the rumble, the undertaker and Paul bear were on Regis and Kathy Lee. And when undertaker was asked to beat him for the WWF title, bear responded, Rick flair showing that Undertaker's spirit may live forever, but Paul Bear's memory doesn't last very long. Uh, was there a feeling that you couldn't acknowledge Hogan at the time? No. January of 94? No. So it was just... It, it, was probably, it was probably just Paul being Paul and not, not, them. not thinking, oh, I better not say Hogan's name. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about how the actual show itself, the Royal Rumble 94, was received by fans uh, the wrestling observer, of course, does a poll to see what the fans think. And you could at the time vote by fax or you could vote by phone call, uh, or letters. Uh, they got 193 thumbs up, which was 27%. They got 56 thumbs in the middle, which is 7.8%. And they got 467 thumbs down with 65.2%. Uh, the best match on the poll was, uh, the hearts versus the Quebecers. And the worst match was the Undertaker-Yokozuna match. Uh, do you agree with that assessment as a whole, having just watched that recently? No. What do you think was the best match if it wasn't a Hart and Quebecers? Well, see, I'm partial to Yokozuna and Undertaker. Okay, so everybody thought that was the worst match, and you thought it was the best. I liked it. I can't wait to cover that with you I in a minute. You, I know you can't because you don't appreciate it because you weren't watching at the time. Uh, Ted DiBiase worked as a color commentator here, and I believe this was his debut on color. Is that right? It was. Uh, they make mention of John Madden here and reference his new big contract and that it cost even more to get DiBiase to call the action for the WWF. Uh, DiBiase, interestingly enough, is wearing a jacket, of course, with the money symbol on it. Uh, but it looks like he stole this jacket to me, at least from a, a blackjack dealer or a cruise ship mater D, some such shit. Uh, whose idea was it to use Ted on color here? He didn't do a good job. Ted has a great voice. Everybody loves Ted, the performer, but man, this was kind of brutal. Um, especially in the beginning, it was brutal, but I think he got better as it went on. He either got, got worse. He either got better. We just got used to it. Um, wasn't his forte. Wasn't Ted's forte to do color. Ted was a great promo guy and great in between the bell, but, uh, color was not his deal. How does this happen? How do you guys not know he's not good at it? We would try things. Well, why do you try it in the back? Why do you got to try it in front of everybody? We did. We did. I mean, we did. We did try it before we put him out there, and he was much better. But then he just got when nerves. You're, when you're out there live with no net, yeah, not a lot it. you can do. It's not like you can stop it down and say, "Hey, let's try this again." Well, it, in the studio and in rehearsals and in tryouts, you can do that. If the goal was to book him. Uh, alongside uh, Vince to make Vince look better, it's a good call. It made Vince look better? Well, I'm just saying, you know, there's that old theory that um, a hot chick will befriend a not-so-hot chick and go out with her because it makes her look even better. Is that why you take me out with you? It is. Okay. I got to say, though, what really stood out about this whole DiBiase introduction is they made a big point to mention John Madden and how much money his new contract was for. Uh 
did John Madden ever have any serious talks with you guys about doing stuff? Oh, without a doubt, he definitely did. But obviously, Vince went <laughs> with Ibiase to save a little money. Uh, so from the January 31st Observer, uh, we get, if nothing else, the 1994 Royal Rumble is going to be the subject of a lot of controversy and polarized views. The vehemence in the phone calls to the Observer was like no show in recent memory. He goes on to say, from a wrestling standpoint, the show only had one good match, two average to slightly below average matches, only one finish out of the five, and an average battle royal with no winner that was nothing more than a build-up to the latest telephone scam and was either highlighted or lowlighted by the most unique finish to a title match in history. The title match featured someone purportedly dying, levitating in midair, and then going to heaven but vowing to resurrect one day. From a production standpoint, it was well above the norm, and you can't say the show wasn't creative. I know you're going to snap here, Bruce, but isn't this a fair criticism? No, that's a fair criticism. Wow, okay. You said something else I wrote was fair. Let's continue. Not correct, but fair. I'm sure we'll break break the streak. Uh, He goes on, the idea that something surrealistic or something that exposes the business is going to kill the business today when it comes to the two top promotions simply for being an expose or surrealistic is an outdated notion that has been proven wrong time and time again. Uh, But this does make it very difficult to promote a style based on realism in this country and have it marketable to all but the most hardcore and the most dense. Anyone who argued the WCW exploding boat angle was stupid and thought the finish of the Undertaker-Yokozuna match was anything but is judging things by a double standard. Uh, It only made me cringe for one reason. To anyone in this country who is attempting to promote pro wrestling as anything but a Broadway stage show, it was a nail in their coffin. And it's a coffin that has been shut on many of them already. Uh, So, Bruce, I want your insight here. In hindsight, do you remember there being a particular moment when, as a fan, you felt like the WWF was decidedly more, quote-unquote, Broadway stage than sport? And did you like it? Because you're from the old school where things were positioned and presented in a much different manner. And now we've got a guy fucking dying and going to heaven on a pay-per-view, which by the old Houston wrestling standpoint is fucking ridiculous. The old school in me would cringe at a lot of this shit. And, and we would make comments about that when you think about it and you say, Oh my God, uh, the old man's rolling over in his grave right, right now. And the old man being Vince's father, the old man being Vince's father, or we would pick out, we'd pick out Paul Bosch. We would pick out any, you know, Roy Shires. We'd pick out any old time promoter that, uh, had left us and say, Oh my God, they're rolling over in his grave or Luthez can't wait to die to roll over in his grave. What, you know, whatever, because some of the ridiculous things that we would come up with in, in the name of entertainment and, It is entertainment. It is a show. It is a Broadway show. I can't tell you the point. Probably the Slammies, when you look back at, okay, we're we're done here. We can't go back. Go back and look at Land of a Thousand Dances. You look at the things that they did in the Slammies. You look at the things they did on TNT way back in the day on the USA Network. Um, That was not borderline ridiculous it was ridiculous but it got people talking and everybody's saying oh my god did you see this paul bosch in houston texas used to come in with a notepad i kid you not of the time in the show 
and what ridiculous thing Gene Okerlund had said or what ridiculous thing Vince McMahon had said or what ridiculous thing they showed on TNT. And throughout it all, and this was a great lesson to me, he would write these ridiculous things. He says, they don't even refer to their uh, wrestlers as the greatest in the world. They always said, the greatest in the world wrestling federation. And it clicked with me. Oh, my God, that's genius. Because he's not the world champion. He's the World Wrestling Federation champion. He's not the best in the world. He's the best in the World Wrestling Federation. He's not the greatest of all time. He's the greatest in the World Wrestling Federation. This isn't wrestling. This is the World Wrestling Federation. It was that constant branding and that constant reminder of all that negative shit. I just pulled out that one thing of, oh, my God, they're genius. Yeah. So... So to answer your question, yeah, the Slammies and TNT, uh, Tuesday Night well, Titans, some I, of the crazy shit that was done back then. That's when it was. When yeah. you thought, okay, it's more yeah. Broadway now than sport. Yeah. The the kid who grew up going to the matches in Houston and seeing Wahoo McDaniel in Indian strap matches beat the shit out of guys. What's he think of The Undertaker dying going to heaven? I loved it. I loved it. I produced it. I You know, it was... It was crazy it was over the top it was theatrical horseshit but by god it was fun and it and it fit in a a crazy in in a crazy way it fit okay uh Meltzer would also write here's where you're gonna get hot are you ready sure this was also the sleaziest pay-per-view in history this was the first show where it appeared the main emphasis after simply getting the customers 24 or $29 was to get them as much more money as possible before the end of the show and then work a main event finish designed mainly to lead to the latest phone scam of the week. Whether it was desperation or greed, it reeked of both. It's one thing to give the viewer at home a chance to hear something they can't, i.e. exclusive interviews or a chance to talk to a star by paying extra. It is another to withhold key storyline information unless they pay extra to receive it. It is yet another to tell viewers they can vote for something and that their vote is part of an election to determine how storyline is written when in fact the vote has no determination as to storyline that has already been written well before anyone asked them to vote. From a purely capitalistic standpoint, this is good here, the WWF has to be credited since the 900 line did huge business during the show And on paper, this week's phone scam looks to be the best scam of all. But by running the Bret Hart angle and telling fans that they'll have updates on his medical condition, something so significant to the show, since Hart was advertised in the Rumble to begin with by the promotion, only if they pay extra or keeping secret the order of entry except to those who paid extra, it sets a precedent that is only going to get even more sleazy as the years go by. To tell people to vote on something and that their vote determines the next step in the storyline when in fact it has no bearing is outright consumer fraud, whether it fits the legal definition of the term or not. How long will it be before we hear a show go off the air with a match in progress and you have to call the 900 line to hear the finish? The WWF did a Royal Rumble without a winner and on Monday night told them they could pay more to vote to influence who got the title shot when booking decisions had almost surely been made. The decision on who gets the title shot will be announced on weekend television. So, Bruce, we've never really spent much time on the hotlines before, but clearly the hotlines were a big part of the 94 Royal Rumble. So let's talk about the revenue they produce, who handled them for the company, 
How was the decision made to include them as part of a big show like this? Was it a Vince idea? Was there uproar from the fans? Give me let, something. Let, let me ask you a question. Did Dave Meltzer just for free call you and give you all this information, or did you subscribe and pay him for his stuff? Did you pay him for that information? I paid for this. You paid for that. You paid for that subscription. I did. Okay. So to get that information from him, his dirt that he put in his little sheet. Uh, each week, people paid for and they subscribed to because he was in business. No different than we were in business to be able to get people to participate, but also to get a read and to get a feel on people who do pay money and who are interested in your product to give you an instant read back on what they're feeling, what they're buying, and what they're not buying. That's all it is. It is capitalist. We're in America. We're, we're in business to make money, and that's what we we're trying to do. So you're going to do a second show for money? Yes. <laughs> hey, if folks are willing to pay and they want a second show, I'm still going to give them this for free. Oh, we should start a hotline. We should start a hotline. You know what? What if we did a poll? We should do a poll and but a hotline. But I think people should pay. For the votes. Yeah. Now we're thinking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, whose idea was the hotline? Probably somebody in marketing. Uh, was I almost said Barry Dedinsky just real quick, but Barry was in charge more of the direct sales, and uh, he was our Don West back who, in the day. So you don't know who handled the, the hotline for the company? It was marketing. Do you know what kind of revenue they produced? I really don't. Um, I know. So I know that the pay per views did did better than the pay per views spurred hotlines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so who makes the decision to include it so heavily here where there's a non-finish? But if you want to know, call the 900 number. It was just something that was done after the fact. It was done simply to, okay, here we have this vehicle. It's another revenue stream. What did Vince think about it? I don't really remember. I don't remember it being that big of a deal. Was there an uproar or was it only Meltzer who was butthurt? I don't remember an uproar at all. Okay. So this is maybe just the 20 something. people that called Meltzer probably were in an uproar. Uh, let's talk about uh, something else he wrote here. And this is going to feel like we're picking on him again. And, and I hate it, but it is what happened. Uh, Meltzer wrote Luger is not a draw, which is the key point. Bret Hart is a better wrestler, which is a point no one would argue. Hart is more popular, which is a factor in drawing, but not an all inclusive factor. The truth is making Hart champion, which seems to be the popular alternative to Luger won't make a difference at the box office. Whatever summer business the WWF will do, it'll roughly do the same with either Hart or Luger on top. However, the problem is any Hart-Luger confrontation exposes Luger's lack of deep-rooted popularity. Not his lack of ability, the lack that deep down the rest of the fans don't buy the gimmicks. After everyone was eliminated, Hart and Luger's showdown lasted all of 24 seconds. Any longer, and Luger would have been turned strong heel to the fans at home even if he did nothing that would garner such a reaction. It was already happening live. The difference in reaction to the announcements of who had won the Rumble, Luger got an initial pop, but then was drowned out quickly by booze. Meanwhile, Hart got all the cheers, was apparent to everyone live, although the music quickly cut off, so it wasn't as apparent to folks watching on pay-per-view. Uh, so unless a change is made immediately, and this is key, Titan is going into WrestleMania for the first time with a headline match not being the match people are dying to see. This year's Mania should be the lowest buy rate in history for a Mania no matter what is on top. 
but clearly Luger Yokozuna is not in the people's eyes, a dream match they've been waiting six months for. So Bruce, um, this feels like we're picking on Luger, but plain and simple him in this huge baby face role just didn't work. Um, can you disagree with what Meltzer wrote there? I know you just like to disagree to disagree, but no, I, the, the simple fact that people weren't buying Lex and that was, that's reality. They, they weren't. And why do you think that is though? I know we've talked about it before on our Lex express episode, which is available in the archives, but let's touch on it again. And maybe if you don't know, can you think of any instances where the machine is behind someone like this, but the fans just aren't having it? Oh, I probably could if I, if I thought about it. But in regards to Lex specifically, nothing think, current rings a bell. Roman Reigns, oh, right I, off the top. I'm not going to get that on me. I don't want that on me. But well, yeah, so you get poking on me. But yeah, Roman Reigns is one. But I think that Roman has it. I don't think that Lex had it connecting and being able to. It's worth mentioning, too, Roman's a much better in-ring performer than Lex Luger. Without a doubt. I mean, people are going to hear this and make that comparison, which is why I wanted you to say it. But realistically, there's no comparing the two. I want to know, how different do you think Mania 10 would have been had it finished with Lex and Yoko on top? Wow, I don't know. Uh, Thank God it didn't. That's all I got to say. <laughs> well, let's get to but the... But that was never the... I mean, and, and just for the record, that was never the plan. Sure. So it was, you know, we got to where we wanted to be and, and kind of, frankly, didn't didn't really know till the last minute. This is one where we knew what the attraction was going to be. We knew where we wanted to get, but kind of played it close to the vest and, and tried to listen to the audience and, and find out... All right, which way are they going to go? Do they, do they want to swing Brett or do they want to swing Lex? And overwhelmingly, I think that they ended up swinging Brett, obviously. And we felt that in in the middle of it, and what helped, frankly, is the uh, underswell, the undercurrent of the Brett-Owen issue. Right. That all of a sudden we had, holy shit. This could be strong, and you can break Lex. I mean, break bread away from Yoko, and you've got a whole brand new, fresh match with Brett and Owen. And then the way that we did it at WrestleMania by having Owen go out and beat Brett first. Yeah. So I've got a victory over you, and then that. So that all played into it as we as we sat there and thought about how can we make this work. And looking to the future, you're not just looking at that one event. You're looking at what will come out of it and what will be the best product on the other side. And the decision was, you know what? Brett Nolan with a real story. And and I don't know if I should get the sidebar here, but we'll get into it more. But Vince hated Brett Nolan. Didn't think this is a quote. Did not. Brothers don't fight. Wow. Ah, damn, pal, brothers don't fight, it's family. It's and I looked at him and I was like, what? I got four of them. This I, I don't speak fight. to none of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't speak to any of them. Uh, well, we fought. And we fought with our fists. We fought, you know, verbally. We, f- we fought. There was rivalry there. 
And I think that anybody that has siblings, man, there's rivalry there. And that's something everybody can relate to and feel. So the Brett Owen issue coming out of everything was more, that was more realistic. That was more emotional than a personal issue over a championship belt. You throw them both together. I think that we had something there. And we've got something for you in the archives. If you want more Lex Luger talk, we're right in the middle of his run. Uh, the, the coronation was supposed to be at SummerSlam, and it seems like it hit the pause button until what many thought would be WrestleMania. We've got that full story for you in our Lex Express episode, and I'm sure at some time in the future we'll cover WrestleMania 10, which is essentially what the Royal Rumble 94 is setting up. Let's get to the matches. Uh, in the only dark match on the show, the Brooklyn Brawler pinned Jim Powers in the dark match. First match on the pay-per-view is Tatanka pinning Bam Bam Bigelow, who's filling in for Ludwig Borga. Uh, Tatanka would use a flying body press off the top rope in about eight minutes to get the win. Uh, and Meltzer reported, and I found this hilarious, Tatanka was minus the red stripe in his hair. Quote, apparently the dye job was causing too rapid hair loss. Do you remember this? Yeah, you got to bleach your hair and then put that red shit in it. Yeah, it was falling out. I don't know. That just, uh, that's fun to me. Uh, the second match on the show, uh, the actual live pay-per-view, of course, is the Quebecers keeping the WWF tag titles, beating both Brett and Owen uh, in roughly 17 minutes. The first seven minutes saw the Hearts dominate uh, before the Quebecers would really start to work on Brett, which told the story for the rest of the match. And the major spot in the match is when Johnny Polo opened up the ropes, causing Brett to take a bump to the floor, and he would start sailing the knee in a major way. Uh, so they start hitting his knee with chairs, brooms, whatever, and really focusing on it for the rest of the match. Uh, eventually, Brett had the chance to tag Owen, but instead went for the sharpshooter on Pierre, but his knee couldn't hold the move. Uh, so the referee stops the match, ruling that Brett couldn't continue. So it's kind of a non-finish here uh, with the ref calling it off. And after the match, Owen starts yelling at Brett and finally kicks his bad knee, and Brett wound up doing a stretcher job with Stan Lane, telling the fans to call the hotline to find out his condition. Uh, meanwhile, Owen is doing a backstage interview on the video wall, which is broadcast inside the arena. And they're doing this with Brett on a stretcher just beneath the video wall. And uh, Owen says that Brett was, quote, too damn shellfish. And that's why he had to, quote, kick your leg out of your leg. Uh, so lots to talk about here. Uh, really sets up some iconic matches between the brothers. That was really a highlight of this era. Um, and we just talked about how Brett had campaigned to work with Owen. But I'm curious, how do you feel this presentation was? This match itself at the time, how was it received in this turn? What did the office think of this now that they've actually got to see it play out? Well, I personally love the match itself. I love the psychology of the match with Owen shining at the top of the match and then getting the heat on Brett, and Brett's sell job was tremendous. In hindsight, um, hated the finish. I thought that the finish was executed poorly. It was a good idea. I don't know the execution. You know, probably um, great idea, poor execution, or... Probably could have had Polo attack Owen and take something, him out. I, and something was missing. It, yeah. It just, the way that the referee just stopped the match, it. It left, it fell flat on the crowd. Oh, God. It was deader than K 
Kelsey's nuts. Dinner plate full of piss. But what is Kelsey's nuts? I don't know. Okay. Just goddamn, don't question me on my fucking sayings that I've been saying for years. So cornetism. I, that's a shirt. Better Kelsey's nuts. Flatter in a plate full of piss. Let's talk about. You ever seen fu- a plate full of piss? No. Well, it's pretty, it's pretty flat. flat. <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about the Quebec. Why does he know what a plate of piss looks like? What's he doing? Hey, I don't know, but it fits. Uh, let's talk about the Quebecers. I don't know when we we'll talk about these guys again. Uh, give us the backstory on the pairing, and then of these guys individually, because. It feels like Pierre is not a guy that would have necessarily been the apple of Vince's eye. Pardon the pun. That's that was weak. No, I said pardon the pun. Well, Pierre was uh, from Montreal, as was Jacques Rougeau, and uh, those Quebecers and Canadians kind of stick together. But Pierre was somebody that was recommended by. Uh, Jacques and Jacques had been a tag team for a long time with his brother Raymond. Um, he had done the Rougeau brothers. The well, he'd done the Rougeau brothers. The Mountie also done the Mountie, and this was a way to kind of continue the Mountie gimmick with a partner and be the Quebecers without having to use the Mountie, which we got a lot of heat for in Canada and could not use the Mountie name in Canada. So by calling them the Quebecers, still wearing the red and the black. Uh, outfit similar to the Mounties was a way to do that. So it was just two guys that had known each other for a long time. And um, had we already done Jean-Pierre Lafitte? Or was that after this? Uh, I think I, we had done the, the Pirate first. Yeah. Which which I kind of... Because he only had one eye, so you could put a patch over and he could work. But Pierre Ouellette, Pierre Ouellette, he was a... a he was a hell of an athlete. And Who pitched us putting the eye patch on him? He's a, he's a pirate. Did you know pirates have eye patches? He's a pirate from Quebec. Yeah. Well, we said he was from France because that's where all pirates come. Their name's Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Man. They got you, schools in Alabama. You're not saying this isn't a rib about him being... Never mind. Uh... Golly, I really don't want to move on. He only had one eye, folks. He was legally blind. He was actually a miracle, the things he could do. So, (laughs) Go ahead. What about Raven? No, what about... (laughs) You just said this (laughs) I could do. (laughs) What about this guy's a miracle? He's what also he's a goddamn miracle. This is the t- well, no, he was he was le- he was legally blind. He was, and he can still I, I, run. He can still I don't know what the hell. Yeah, he can still wrestle with one eye. It's a, try it sometime, okay? Stan Hansen's been doing it with no eyes for oh, forty good, years. Good point. Okay, I retract my statement. He's a miracle. He's a miracle. <laughs> if I had only been practicing, I could have healed his ass. When we are healed. When we watched this show the other day you made a comment about something he could do he could catch a ball <laughs> he could go try catching the goddamn baseball with one eye oh, it tickled me to hear you try to sell that to me as being this big miraculous deal it was it's uh, a miracle have you are you familiar with the phrase butt pirate once you educate me just wanted to know if you've ever heard it before 
and he's from Quebec, and he has an eye patch, and none of this is a rib. No. Oh, my God, no. All right. Let's talk about uh, Raven. What about Raven? What about Johnny Polo here? Uh, oh, he okay. Had, Johnny Polo. I remember he, him. He had worked for WCW as Scotty Flamingo in Portland before that. And, of course, later he would go on to become Raven for ECW and carry that moniker for the rest of his career. But here uh, he is appearing as the Polo character. How does this come about? Why wasn't he a wrestler after he had been wrestling before? And it seems a little odd, uh, but it actually comes out. He worked at the office at the time. How in the world does that come about? Well, his verbal skills were good. He cut a good promo. And here's here's one for you. Vince felt that he was too small to wrestle. And, you know, when you, you throw One, that, two, three kids on the roster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to continue. Yeah, exactly. And then you look at the guys from... Yeah. Moving forward, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of funny the guys that were deemed too small back in the day, but got uh, Scotty had the gift of gab, and Vince wasn't particularly fond of his work at all. Felt he was too small, so made him a manager, and he also came in. He lived locally, came in, tried him out in the office, writing some of the uh, cable shows like Mania and some of the uh, secondary cable, um, uh, not cable, syndicated shows. And how did he do? Not great, but not bad. Not great. Not terrible. No, so just but not great in the middle. It was. Yeah. So there's this perception amongst uh, fans and people inside the business that that Raven is one of the has one of the all time great minds for the business. You would disagree. I would say that he didn't fit in at the time. Yeah. So at least in 94, from a television standpoint, it was a miss. It was a miss, yes. You know, look at what he became, and, and I look at the initial, you know, you, you want to talk about reinventing themselves and becoming relevant. You look at what Scott Levy did with the Raven character, I thought was genius, and I loved that stuff. But Polo was something that we gave him, didn't work, and um, I don't know if he really fit in in the office atmosphere and in that creative atmosphere that was at the time. Um, there's lots of rumor and innuendo um, that he was tight with Shane McMahon at the time. Do you remember that? Oh, he and Shane used to go out. Yeah, we all did. Any, any fun partying stories with Johnny Polo? Uh, just kind of a regular night out. Not really. Okay. Uh, we can't move on without to- talking about Owen's promo. What was the reaction to his line about kicking his leg out of his leg? Well, it works. He's like, it's live. It's right after it happened. It's, it's real. So you, what's the reaction? Oh shit. I would like to have set, set it better, but it, it it's live. Uh, third match on the show is Razor Ramon. He keeps the Intercontinental title pinning IRS after about 11 minutes. Uh, it starts kind of slow, and then there's a ref bump before the IRS tries to use the briefcase uh, before Razor uses it, but there's no ref to count. So Shawn Michaels runs down and hits Razor with his Intercontinental belt. At the time, if you remember, uh, Shawn had gone away and took the belt with him. Uh, so Razor uh, became the new Intercontinental champion, and now there are two quote-unquote champions both carrying their own belt uh well when he comes down and hits razor with his belt it allows irs to get the pin so earl hebner runs down to tell the original ref what happened so the match continues and irs is not the champion 
Instead, Razor gets the pin after the Razor's Edge. Uh, what did you think of this match and this angle? It seems like this is a perfect way to set up Razor and Sean at WrestleMania. It was. And that's what it was utilized for. So I enjoyed the match. It was, it was a good, solid match. I love Rotunda's work and love Razor's work. Well, and now we're here. Um, the match that everybody probably wants to hear about. And the fourth match on the pay-per-view broadcast, Yokozuna keeps the WWF title, uh, beating The Undertaker after about 14 minutes in what you could describe as a bizarre match. Uh, first of all, it's a casket match, and the guys are going to use chair shots, including one very nasty one from Yoko to Taker when Taker was on the stairs. Uh, Fuji's salt is in the eyes, of course. And then we have interference from Crush, Kabuki, Tenru, Diesel, Adam Bomb, both head drinkers, Bam Bam Bigelow, Jeff Jarrett, Jim Cornette, and pretty much every other heel in the promotion. Uh, and somehow in the middle of this, Mr. Fuji gets the urn from Paul Bearer, uh, and the beatdown continues. But when Paul Bearer miraculously gets the urn back and then hits Cornette and Fuji with it, the Undertaker makes a 10-to-1 comeback against everyone. Uh, finally, Yokozuna gets the urn from Bearer, knocks him out with it, uh, and uh, then it opens up, and green smoke comes bellowing out. So a couple things to touch on here before we continue with the match, Bruce. Was this the first time the urn was opened? Yes. Uh, what was the storyline explanation supposed to be? What do you mean? Well, the, the green, under- the green smoke, the spirit of the undertaker, those power of the undertaker being uh, released. Uh, so when his powers are being released all over the building, um, <laughs> who is your go-to guy for green smoke effects? At that time, it may have been Richie Posner and Mr. Magic. Say it like you normally do. Come on. What? Magic. Well, Richie Posner was magic. Uh, You got any good stories about the urn you can share? (laughs) One day when we talk about Curtis Hughes and and The Undertaker, I'll I'll tell you a good urn story. Today's not the day. Today's not the day. Uh, Okay. so You know what? Maybe if we do a second show, I'll tell the urn story. Don't do that. You're just going <laughs> to piss everybody off. Don't do that. Um, let's go to the Observer Kidding quote folks. here. Uh, Bigelow, Samu, and Fatu all come off the top on The Undertaker, and they get him in the casket and started wheeling him down the aisle. Then the music played, and the lights went back on, and on the video wall came a message from The Undertaker, direct from inside the casket largely saying he was about to die, but his spirit would live on forever and that eventually he'd be back. And then he closed his eyes as if to die. And then the video showed the undertaker spirit leaving his physical body and a special effect showed him levitating in midair and finally raising to the heavens with his arms spread a la the crucifixion. Uh, so much to talk about here, Bruce. Um, but first taker wouldn't appear on television for months after this. Why was he giving time off? There's two schools of thought, two different theories that I read. One was that he had a back injury he needed to heal. And the other was that he had requested time off in November because his wife was going to have a baby and he wanted to spend some time at home. What's the real story as you remember? Well, he wanted to spend some time at home. He wanted time off and he just needed to heal up a little bit. He'd been, he had been going straight for quite a few years. When a guy puts in a request like that back in 94, do they go to someone else or do they go to Vince and say? Go to Vince. Okay. Went to Vince. These days, they probably talk to Carano or somebody else, right? Yeah. Um, of course, this break 
uh, would lead to vignettes about the Undertaker's return. And um, it wasn't the real Undertaker. So we set up Undertaker versus Underfaker at the 94 SummerSlam. So that's kind of where we're going with this. Uh, talk me through. There's rumor and innuendo, and your Twitter blew up with it this week, and mine did too. It was Marty Jannetty dressed up like the Undertaker. Poke holes in the rumor and innuendo there. Oh, it's just absolutely false. It was not Marty Jannetty. Who was it? It was a guy from Providence, Rhode Island. Just a local. Yeah. Not not necessarily a worker, just a stagehand, just somebody who had the look. No, I, th- I actually think he was a worker, but uh, I couldn't tell you his name. Don't know if I'd recognize him today, but he was about the same same size and height as The Undertaker. Uh, what type of prep do you guys put into 1994 and doing a stunt like this? We are going to hook a guy up to cables and raise it and all that. How many times would you run through this? I can't imagine uh, this was... Several. Okay. Yeah, several times. Um, and it's hard to replicate in an arena that has natural light coming through the damn thing because you want to... You want to create the atmosphere with the smoke and the ascension and the right lighting without being. And it's able always going to look hokey in the daytime compared well, to night. Yeah, it's it's um, it's just not going to be right. So when you saw them doing this in the the walkthroughs before, did you start to get cold feet and think, "Oh, this is going to be fucking terrible"? No. So you, you felt confident about it even in the walkthrough, and yeah. so when you actually saw it, you felt like it was. Hey, we did it. It was a good payoff. I liked it. What did Vince think? He loved it. What did Pat Patterson think? Liked it. Did anybody not like it? Not that I recall. Was there any sort of debate about um, sending The Undertaker to quote-unquote heaven and having him levitate away? There there was discussion of the, uh, yeah, the symbolism of it. But it's The Undertaker. He's ascending to, you know... Who, who was against the idea? I don't know. I, who, can, I, I don't know. I mean, you bring you bring that up in, in a discussion. Are people going to say this? No. You just ask the question. It's not necessarily don't do this because of that. There's not anybody that I recall at all saying that this is a bad idea. Don't do it because of. What did Ted DiBiase think about it? Didn't ask him. He didn't say anything that you remember? Not that I remember. Did uh, Undertaker have an issue with it? Nope. When did y'all film the casket footage? Day of? Wow. I think so. No, we might have brought him into the studio. I think we might have brought him into the studio. We either did it day of or, or the day before. Help me understand if we're sitting around a room, we're at a building, um... Vince is in the room, so the guys are going to come by and talk to him and go over whatever their grievances are. Undertaker comes in the room, asks for time off. Man, I'm beat up. My wife's pregnant. You know, it would be cool if you guys could figure out a way to get me off the road and give me a break when the baby's going to be here. I could heal up and spend some time at home and then come back and get after it for you. He leaves the room. Vince says, yes, we'll work on it, pal. He leaves the room, and then somebody says, well, how do we write him off? And then somebody says... We could send him to heaven. No. How does that come about? It's just, it, it's just a natural progression of things. It's it's that wasn't decided right then. It was we need I get to figure, that. we need to figure out a way to get him off the TV for a while. You do a casket match, he goes away, and then it's like, well, the Undertaker wouldn't just go away. 
Are you going to give me any sort of voice explanation as to what that sounds like when somebody comes up with this idea? No. Goddamn, pal. No, it, it just, it, it's... <laughs> to me, this is like I wouldn't be on TV if I was dead and you blew up Vince's limo. Well, he wouldn't be on TV if you went it, to heaven. The best, the best I can recall, it was just kind of a. You know, it was gonna, a lot. Of, it was a lot of back and forth of what would happen. What would happen if you buried the Undertaker? God damn! Does a casket explode? Then he couldn't be on TV if he was dead. Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. And then you, you sit there, and there's other suggestions. I know what we can do. He can float above. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, it was just kind of back and forth of what would happen, and kind of settled on on that. And you know, Vince had this this vision of what he saw. And the I don't even know if it was if it was Vince or Undertaker who came up with the idea of putting the the camera in the casket and getting that shot and doing that, which I thought looked cool as shit and it worked and, and it was it was fun and it was entertainment. It was it was. It was a stage show. And that's what WWE does best. Well they proved it this day. Uh, before the Royal Rumble match itself began, Vince McMahon announced that the WWF's president, Jack Tunney, had shortened the intervals between the entrances from the two minutes down to just 90-second time constraints. Why was this done? Might have been done because we might have been running long. <laughs> so we just shortened it and made the announcement so that uh, the folks that were going to call people out in California didn't say, They only did 90 seconds! All right, so one of the things we're good at here on the show, Bruce, is talking about the rumor and innuendo. Uh, let's run through some. Uh, there's a rumor that Kamala was supposed to compete in the Rumble match, but he was replaced by Virgil. Do you have any idea what was up with Kamala? Nope. Do you believe that that was accurate? I, I don't recall. Uh, Ludwig Borga couldn't compete due to an ankle injury and was replaced by a guy who debuted this month, Quang, with an A, not Quang. Uh, can you tell me the idea behind Quang? Sure. Uh, Quang was uh, Juan Rivera, also known as Savio Vega. And or he, TNT, depending on or where you Or TNT or El Casario, depending upon where you were in the, in the world. And as El Casario, Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico had sent him to uh, Mid-South right before uh, I had left. But he was a hell of a hand, great guy. And looking to get out of Puerto Rico and coming in, and the idea was put him under a hood, and we didn't have a Chinese <laughs> wrestler, anybody representing the country of China, and so came up with Quang, and he would be from China, under a hood, would never speak, or have Mr. Fuji manage him, one of the two. Uh, the one, two, three kid was replaced by Thurman Sparky plug, who was also making his debut, uh, this same month. Uh, Holly had been working as an enhancement talent for you guys for a few years. Uh, and he briefly did some stuff with WCW too. Uh, but he had also had some stints with Smoky mountain and he'd been around for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years by this point. What leads to him finally getting his break with the WWF and whose idea was the character? Jim Cornette was in love with Bob Holly and Holly was working down. What's it sound like? 
God damn, you gotta see this guy, Bob Holly. He's fucking great. He's one of the new, uh, what the hell was he? Was he one of the new, uh, Midnight Express? He's like in the in the new Midnight Express, but he's great. You gotta see him. He looks great. His body's great. And he can talk, and he's a good guy. So you go on, you know, through this whole Bob Holly plug, and we met with Bob, and Bob did. He had a, he had a great look. Good-looking young guy. And in meeting with Vince and talking about the different things that Holly was interested in, he also was a race car driver. And this is the era of occupation gimmicks. Exactly. So um, the idea was, oh, my God, what if we actually, you know, you have a become a race car driver? And hence Thurman Plug was born, but my friends call me Sparky. You can call me STP. So S T P. I was oh, hoping yeah. you'd get to that. Oh yeah. Had the whole gimmick S T P and howdy folks. My name is Thurman Plug. My friends, they call me Sparky. Oh S T P. Sparky Thurman Plug. Yep. There you go. And Bob Holly was born and we went down and shot vignettes at the beautiful snowball derby in Pensacola, Florida. Bob Holly wasn't born. Sparky Plug was born and then eventually he became Sparky plug Bob Holly. Sparky Thurman plug. And then he just became Bob Holly. <laughs> well, y'all used that name with him for a little while too. Um, no Thurman. He got rid of Thurman. Who's that? This Thurman. You had to have a T in there. Sparky plug. How about Thomas? Get it, Sparky plug. I got that. Vince. Vince like Thurman. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Bastion. Don't want to. God damn. Anybody can be named Thomas. Not a lot of Thurmans. There was a Thurman Thomas, though, for the Bills. <laughs> well, probably. Uh, That's where he got it from then. <laughs> uh, Bastion Booger was scheduled to be the 25th participant, but he did not appear for unknown reasons. Vince McMahon stated on the broadcast that he did not appear because he, quote, did not feel good. Uh, where was Booger? You got to give me something here. Was this a rib? Fuck. I don't remember where the hell Booger was. We're going to talk about Bastion Booger is the prime example of unless you really want to see something on TV and okay. Yeah. Unless you really want to see it, man, don't suggest it to Vince because sometimes shit can just take a life on its own and you can go from being the most feared man in the business to being Bastion Booger. And I will take 100% uh, blame, credit, whatever, for Bastion Booger. Uh, we that was your to, idea? Yeah, it was my name. It was my, he was looking for shit. The, the, I had, I had um, beat up and killed the Friar Ferguson mad monk gimmick that, I think was the brainchild of Vince that he loved so much that just shit the bed so bad that he realized it just shit the bed. It was come up with something different. And I came up with Bastion Booker. Just thinking, let's just, you know, it's almost as good as you, let's just go as ridiculous as we can. And you want ridiculousness. You want shit people will remember. You want shit people will talk about. How about Bastion Booger? And oh my God, it, we did it. So sometimes, yeah, it can be, there are things, as I've told the story on previous shows about having a, 
lingerie match with two beautiful women turning into the Stooges in an evening gown match. I love it. Um, the name Booger, is that uh, a nod to Revenge of the Nerds? No, it was just, I, I kid you not, it was just throwing out you just picked that name. ridiculous Bastion Booger. You want you want to get ridiculous? You want to get silly? Uh, Bastion Booger. I love it. Beaver Cleaver. Beaver Cleavage. Uh, either way. Uh, okay, let's get to the Royal Rumble match. Bret Hart and Luger uh, tie in the Royal Rumble after 55 minutes and 8 seconds. Uh, the time of the entries was said to be cut down from 2 minutes to a minute 30, but many were in the minute 40 range. Of course, this level of detail comes to us from the Wrestling Observer. Uh, Scott Steiner opens up with Samu as the first two entrants. And just as Samu has Scott almost over the top, it's Rick Steiner's time to come in, which is kind of interesting because it's the inverse of what you got with the war games. Instead of two heels working on one baby face, it's about to be two faces working on a heel, which is right on time because Scott is nearly eliminated. Uh, but Rick, um, just walked to the ring very slowly and didn't run in to save his brother. Uh, he instead takes time to shake people's hands and take his time. Uh, I found that kind of odd. Well, the original, original, original idea was to start with Scott and Rick against each other. It goes back to God damn pal. Brothers don't fight. So and they didn't say they didn't want to do it. Vince didn't want to do it. Vince didn't want to do it, but okay. we eased into it. If they're not one and two. Yeah. Yeah. You can get there. It's okay. If they're in there at the same time, then they're competing. I'm, like, I'm sitting there thinking, what the fuck is the difference? Kind of a fun, uh, exit for Samu. Uh, he, uh, chokes himself on the ropes on the way out, which is kind of fun. Uh, for who? Well, I'm just, it's a fun visual for me as a fan. I don't want to actually be choked by the ropes, but it's a cool visual. Is it not? It's a cool visual. Uh, Quang was entrant number four. Uh, Owen Hart was number five and Bart Gunn was number six. Uh, then diesel would come in at number seven and diesel would uh, go on to eliminate seven folks, uh, including, uh, Quang and Bart and Owen. Um, he would also eliminate number eight, which is Bob Backlund. Number nine, which is Billy Gunn, and ten, which is Virgil, and we got lots of tweets about the uh, the elbows that Diesel was throwing at Virgil here. That seemed like they were woo. They were a little snug, but I didn't think they were out of line in any way, shape, or form. What did you think of Diesel's performance here in the Rumble? And, and I'm only I'm not asking that. I know some people are going to say I'm shitting on Kevin, but the reason I'm singling him out is it seems as if the the Titan style of booking the rumble for a long time has been you, you make Roman look strong. I mean, you got to get somebody over strong and with a lot of eliminations, whether it's Kane or it's Roman or it's diesel. Well, this year it was diesel. Uh, we talked about the 97 Royal rumble before it's in our archives. Well, that was clearly Steve Austin's time to shine. Well, here diesel has seven eliminations. So he's certainly kind of the featured guy in this match. Is that fair to say? Without a doubt, I thought that he looked great in it. I thought it helped establish that Diesel character and brought him into his own. Uh, he would eventually be eliminated um, after 17 minutes and 41 seconds, but it would take Mabel, Bam Bam Bigelow, Sparky Plug, Shawn Michaels, and Crush to get him out. So uh, quite a push for him here in the match. Uh, Randy Savage would come in at number 11. He would be eliminated by Crush, and that furthered 
their feud, which would obviously culminate in a WrestleMania 10 match. Oh, don't uh, remind me. Jeff Jarrett uh, would be number 12. He would eliminate, uh, he would be eliminated by Randy Savage. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Let's be real. You knew that song was coming, so at least we got it out of the way. Uh, Number 13 was Crush. He would be eliminated by Lex Luger, Sparky Plug, Bret Hart, and Bam Bam Bigelow. Shuckabra. Number 14 is Doink the Clown. He would be eliminated by Bam Bam Bigelow. Who was playing Doink at this point? That would be Ray Apollo. Uh, What might we know Ray Apollo from besides Doink? You wouldn't. Okay. Uh, number 15 was Bam Bam Bigelow. He was eliminated by Lex Luger. Number 16 was Mabel. Uh, and Mabel was eliminated uh, after roughly 10 minutes by Greg Valentine, Tataka, The Great Kabuki, Crush, Bam Bam Bigelow, Sparky Plug, and Shawn Michaels. So it took a whole team of folks to get him out. Uh, number 17 was Sparky Plug. And he was eliminated after 21 minutes. So a great debut uh, for Sparky Plug here. Uh, he would be eliminated by Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Uh, number 18 would be Shawn Michaels. He would be eliminated by Lex Luger after 29 minutes. So another really nice performance from Shawn in the Rumble. Uh, number 19 would be Mo, a guy we haven't ever talked about here on the show as far as I know. And believe it or not, he made it 22 minutes and managed to eliminate no one before being eliminated by Fatu himself. Uh, any stories about Mo you want to touch on or just circle back to him when we're talking SummerSlam or something else? Yeah, we'll circle back. Uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine was number 20. He was eliminated by Rick Martel. He had a long run as well, running about 20 minutes. Uh, Tataka was number 21. He was eliminated by Bam Bam Bigelow after 20 minutes. The Great Kabuki was in at number 22. He lasted all of two minutes and 46 seconds before Lex Luger threw him out. Nothing like a 16-hour trip from Japan. But he was he was involved in the Undertaker match. So. Yeah, Kabuki, Kabuki. Uh, Lex Luger uh, would be entrant number twenty three, and as we all know, he would be co-winner. He made it twenty one minutes and fifty eight seconds. Uh, number twenty four was Tenru, and he was eliminated by both Bret Hart and Lex Luger. Was there some sort of agreement amongst these Japanese stars when they're coming in? Hey, we're going to get eliminated by the guys who win it, the headliners. No. Okay. It just seems like to me, if they're going to be thrown out and they're coming over and doing a favor, they should be thrown out by the tippy top. No. All right. Um, 25 is Bastion Booger. He was unable to compete. 20. So there was 29 guys on this. I'm just mentioning not 30. Uh, 26 is Rick Martell. Uh, and he would be eliminated by Tatanka after 11 minutes. Uh, Bret Hart would make it 15 minutes at number 27 before, before being co-winner. Uh, number 28 was Fatu. He was eliminated by Bret Hart. Number 29 is Marty Jannetty. He was eliminated by Shawn Michaels. And then number 30, the coveted number 30 spot was Adam Baum. He, too, was eliminated by Lex Luger. Um, Luger had six eliminations in the match. Bret had four. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow had five. Uh, the big winner, of course, though, is Diesel. Diesel had seven uh, folks that he eliminated uh, anything stand out to you in particular about this uh, match and the way it was built up? No, it was it was pretty much built up for that one purpose. Obviously, Brett 
came out late, you know, with the injury, with the injured knee from earlier on in the night. So people didn't know if Brett was going to make it. Will Brett Hart actually be in the Rumble match itself? And then Brett came out, Spirit of 76, for lack of a better term, to come out and be one of the last two people in the match. So it was a good story throughout the entire night from the tag team match with Brett Nowen to Brett, is he going to make it, is he not going to make it, to actually being one of the winners. Um, because I, and, and again, to the, to the people that, that read and call out in California, uh, and critique everything and choose not to find any joy in anything that they would <laughs> look at Brett and Owen earlier in the night and taking Brett out on a stretchers. Oh, well, that's how they're going to get Luger over, uh, in the rumble. Uh, with the way diesel eliminates, uh, Bob Backlund. Uh, because Backlund was a firm heel here. Doesn't it start to tease that Diesel's going to be a babyface here? Or when do you think the, the Diesel babyface turn really starts, if not here? This wasn't so much. Turn your mic on. It'll be more helpful. This wasn't so much the turn of Diesel or even experimenting with that. This was more the experimenting of seeing how Diesel would be as a single. Okay. So that there was really not even any foreshadowing or really any thought at that point of diesel being a baby face. Even who was an advocate for diesel in my head. That's a Vince guy. I think we all were at the time. Okay. Big, good looking guy. And we wanted to get, again, it's an opportunity that you can gauge the crowd reaction to somebody by putting them in, in the ring with a lot of different people and a lot of different stars. See how the crowd reacts to them, whether they buy them or not. And that kind of tells you, well, shit, this guy might be able to spin off on his own and do okay. Uh, so let's run through briefly. Um, you know, when we're talking about the finish of this match, Bret Hart and Lex Luger are going to tie. That can't be a simple thing to kind of get right. And it seems as if maybe purposefully there weren't tons of shots of them landing because you wanted to make sure that nobody could poke holes in it necessarily. Uh, talk us through how a finish for a tie like that happens and what the strategy about the way it's shot might've been. Well, a couple things. It, it can be, it can be very easy and it can be very difficult depending upon the talent that you have in there. And by putting a guy like Bret Hart in there, putting a guy like Shawn Michaels in there, I think, you feel a whole lot more confident and comfortable with them being in control of a situation like that. In this one in particular, Bret Hart was in complete control. So Bret was in control of his body. He was in control of Luger's body. And we knew that it was going to be on the money. The way that it was shot was purposefully, folks. No, we didn't screw up and what shitty cameraman and what shitty director we have. For once, purposely, Kerwin had horrible shots. The shots were made to look so that you never actually really saw the... And that happens all the time in football and other exactly. sports that have replays. You, what, you can't tell it from every angle. But what we also had was we had someone in the crowd on the opposite the hard camera side with a little camera that shot it so that we had it clean. If it worked. If it worked. And then we also also had it clean on other cameras. But the ones that we used and showed, 
every one of them were obstructed just at the right angle so that you can go, oh, Brett's a hit. Brett, Brett, Brett hit first on this one or on this other one. It's like Luger hit first on that one. So you had the illusion both sides that the other guy won. How many times? Y'all have to practice this. You don't just do it live. Before the show, y'all. Brett, Brett and Luger, I think, went over it a couple times earlier in the day. I mean, as far as with directors and the shots, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you got to. But this would have been something you do at the event. Yes. Okay. Day of. Uh, a few more notes uh, from the Observer from the February 14th edition. Um, the latest estimates for the Royal Rumble at that time were that it did about 205,000 buys, which would be uh, a 0.9 buy rate which would estimate to a $2.3 million Titan gross. And that appeared to be up slightly from Survivor Series, but still down significantly than any other Titan pay-per-view in history uh, that would represent a 25% buy rate drop as compared to the year prior, the 93 Royal Rumble. Uh, so even with the increase in television viewership uh, and really strong showings for the Monday Night Raw ratings, it didn't translate into more people attending the house shows or purchasing the pay-per-view events. By comparison, the 93 Rumble drew 16,000 folks for a $187,000 gate, and it did a 1.2 buy rate for a $2.8 million gross. Uh, those numbers again for the 94 Rumble were 14,500 folks in a sellout for a $160,000 gate for a 0.9 buy rate and roughly $2.3 million in gross. Would you classify the 94 Rumble as a success for the WWF, or would you call it a disappointment? That's always disappointment when you do less than what you've done previously. Right. And business at that time was on the downturn. So it was, man, we were fighting and scrapping for everything that we could get. And we were going into the 10th anniversary of WrestleMania. So we were looking for some good momentum to get us there. And thank God we did it in the garden and in New York, because I dare say that anything that we would do there would would do good business for a big event like WrestleMania. But business was rough all over. So at, at this time to do a sellout and <laughs> live, we were happy for. But at the end of the day, you just got to look yourself in the mirror and say that maybe the product that we presented and the card that we presented, hey, just not as many people want to see it. That's on us. Uh, overall, what did you think of the show? Overall, I like the show because you remember the finish. You remember the last the last thing you see, and I thought it was an intriguing finish and one that hopefully would get people interested and make them want to tune in the next night and also hopefully tune in and buy WrestleMania. I liked it. Um, I enjoyed the theatrics with The Undertaker. That's me. Some people obviously didn't. Um, in the end, what do you think most people remember the 94 Royal Rumble for? The double finish or Undertaker goes to heaven? I think both. I really do. I think both. Um, the finish, it was the first time that we'd ever done a finish like that in the Royal Rumble. Obviously, the Rumble was only, what, five, six years old at that point. But... It was innovative at the time, and it had never been done before, so they're going to remember that, but I do believe they're also going to remember that time that The Undertaker ascended to the heavens. So that's not a bad thing to have people remember two big moments in a pay-per-view. 
This these day and age, you're lucky if they can remember the main event. No, I totally agree. I'm hey hey, it's Conrad. He's at Bruce Pritchard. We are at Pritchard Show, uh, and we would love to get some feedback from you. And we will see you here next week on something to wrestle with. Hashtag Rick Roots Dong. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.